One year ago today, January 6, 2021, I am more and more convinced that Donald Trump woke up thinking that he might actually be able to pull this off, that he might actually be able to overturn the election and stay in power. And of course, uh, that didn't happen. But we do know what did happen. And I think uh, throughout today, we're going to be living, reliving uh, the sights and the sounds of the unprecedented, extraordinary assault on the capital of the United States. Let's listen. Well, welcome to the Bulwark Podcast on this one-year anniversary, and to mark this anniversary, we have an all-star panel, Susan Glasser, staff writer at The New Yorker, and the co-author of The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of Jim Baker, and Julian Zelizer, professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University. His books include Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and The Rise of the New Republican Party, and he's a contributor to the forthcoming the Presidency of Donald J. Trump, a first historical assessment. So Susan and Professor Zellager, thank you for, so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Nice to be with you. Thanks for having us. I want to put all of this into historical context. And I, I think that some of us struggled to do that. You know, what happened a year ago, it was like blank. Professor, you, you're a scholar of, of the Watergate era and yet this seems to be so much more serious. So, I mean, let's take a first cut at, at all of this. Can you sort of compare and contrast the crisis caused by Watergate compared to the crisis that we're still in even a year after January 6th? Yeah, that's an interesting comparison. I mean, in one respect, both were crises of the presidency with Richard Nixon. There was an awakening with the scandal and the investigations of, of how powerful and how corrupt the presidency uh, could become. Uh, and then there was a response to it. And that was certainly part of the story. Uh, I think, though, more than Watergate, uh, this raised questions about the strength uh, or weakness of the democratic system as a whole. It wasn't simply about President Trump or not just about the people who rioted uh, or, or tried to take the Capitol that day, but it was about how stable is not only the presidency, but the basic elements of our democracy. So in some ways, it has raised bigger questions uh, than Watergate, which continue right through today. So you were actually quoted a year ago today saying that the attack can only be reminiscent of the Civil War, that the president has been stoking divisions and called for this protest. He called for this chaos. We've never been here before. And frankly, I, I can't come up with a different analogy. I mean, Watergate is like weak tea. This, this, this was potentially the biggest constitutional crisis that we'd faced since the Civil War. Yeah, and I think everything we've learned since then has only amplified the fact that January 6th itself, with 
part of something much bigger. And uh, even though the effort to overturn this election didn't work in the end, uh, it got very close. And you could imagine a million scenarios in which this happened. And that is a very serious constitutional crisis because it was being led by the White House. It wasn't yeah. uh, being led by the people on the ground. So Susan Glasser, this was the year that we were supposed to see the return to normalcy. And I think a lot of people thought that that was the promise of, of Joe Biden. He was going to come into office and return things to a normal political world. And you wrote very recently that obviously that promise has gone unfulfilled. There is no return to normalcy, is there? Well, that's right. Look, here we are having this conversation, uh, you know, uh, at home, sitting here once again, trying to avoid the latest COVID variant. Uh, a year ago, things looked very different. And that's what I'm struck by on this sort of one year past January 6th is the extent to which even with the horror of that day, it was actually in some ways a more optimistic moment than the moment that we're in a year later, right? That you your January 7th self, right? You thought, okay, well, it was terrible, but Maybe this madness is going to cause people to, you know, finally kind of wake up from from the nightmare that Republicans have the ready-made opportunity to disavow Donald Trump. Uh, there seemed to be consensus among those Republicans, even Republican leaders castigating him, talk of getting him out as soon as possible. January 20th was coming soon and the new president, the vaccines had been approved and it was just a matter of time until they were rolled out and uh, we would sort of resume our lives and hopefully begin to reckon with, you know, sort of the damage of the past. But what if essentially January 6th was not the end of Trump, but the beginning of this longer period of crisis? So let me just play for you before we dive more deeply into what could have happened, what actually did happen, what will happen. President Biden marked the anniversary with a very tough speech, um, Almost, I, I guess, well, I want to get your reaction to it because I, I thought it was uncharacteristically tough, held little back and went after Trump. Didn't name him, didn't use the word Trump at all, but clearly you can, you can guess that the cutlery at Mar-a-Lago was shaken by this. Let's just play about a minute of, of, of what uh, Joe Biden said this morning. And here's the truth. A former president of the United States of America has created and spread a web of lies about the 2020 election. He's done so because he values power over principle, because he sees his own interest as more important than his country's interest, than America's interest. And because his bruised ego matters more to him than our democracy or our constitution, he can't accept he lost, even though that's what 93 United States senators, his own attorney general, his own vice president, governors and state officials in every battleground state have all said he lost. That's what 81 million of you did as you voted for a new way forward. He has done what no president in American history, the history of this country has ever, ever done. He refused to accept the results of an election and the will of the American people. Julian Zelizer. Your thoughts, listening to the president. 
Well, look, it's a very tough speech, and this is a side of Biden that doesn't or hasn't come out that much. He's very direct in going after the former president. He's very direct in talking about the kinds of threats uh, that he posed to the democracy, and he is very clear-eyed in terms of talking about what the president has done. So it's a it's a powerful speech. I'm sure it will be spoken about that way in the next 24-hour news cycle. Um, but there's still questions. I mean, a speech is a speech. It's important. But yeah. what happens? What What's done about this? Uh, who's held accountable? What kinds of reforms are put into yep. place to make sure this can't happen? Those are outstanding questions that we're going to face in in the next few months. And and I would say it, it wasn't simply a President Trump problem. It was a Republican problem. And I think this was a story about where the GOP had moved in the last decade or so. Uh, and I think even in this speech, Biden is still a little hesitant for, for a good reason politically to go there. But I think at some level, ultimately, that's the story, because that's why all this continues to this day. It, it hasn't ended and it goes well beyond the former president. He was part of something bigger. Susan Glasser, your reaction to uh, President Biden's remarks? Well, you know, first of all, Joe Biden was made to give a speech like that. It seems to me this is probably the most forceful and passionate speech we've heard him give really since his inauguration address a year ago, nearly a year ago. And, you know, it and yet it's striking that he could have given this speech on any single day since then, since the inauguration, because that's been sort of the immovable state of play, basically, Republicans who have embraced Trump and his big lies, the president, the former president continuing to stoke this kind of slow motion, ongoing attack on the election results and on democracy and to rewrite the narrative of January 6th. And yet Biden's been so reluctant to do that. And, and even with the power of the words in this speech, the thing that I didn't hear was any plan to win the battle for the soul mm -hmm. of America, as Biden puts it. He talks about the battle for the soul of America. But, you know, I remember his former boss, Barack Obama, used to say, recognize the frustration in a, in a speech that just admires the problem and doesn't tell us what to yeah. do about it. Well, how do you win a fight for the soul? I mean, that that's a that's a legitimate question, and I get this all the time. Okay, so what do we do about it? I, I guess I'm, I'm getting to the point where I think, you know, yes, there are legislative fixes that ought to be passed, but none of they, they may be necessary, but they are not sufficient. You know, they're not going to be able to deal with this this alternative reality, acceptance of lies, anti-democratic surge, you know, fetish for violence that's out there. I mean, how do you win a fight for the soul, Susan? <laughs> Luckily, I, 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 you know, I get to just criticize and not uh, have to come up with plans myself. It's it's the challenge that Biden both sought out and defined for himself. Yeah. This was the animating power of his candidacy was his idea that he was in effect giving up on the, the new environment because of the threat posed by Donald Trump. And he, his whole narrative of his campaign was, I listened to what Trump said about Charlottesville and I knew that we were in a battle for the soul of America. And so, you know, to say that this was the reason that animated your, your candidacy and your presidency in the first place, it's not going to be fixed by uh, a <laughs> right act. Okay, so Julian Zeller, take a crack at that, um, because th this was the big theme of the Biden campaign, right? That he was going to, you know, fix the soul of America. 
but what? So what? And yeah, I mean, you do look, what? It's a, it was, I think Susan's <laughs> right. That's a, it's a tough promise. Um, and there's some things he can do, some things he can't do. He's not going to fix instantly the way our social media, cable media ecosystem works and the way disinformation has become almost normative in American politics. But you can't give up on reform. I mean, uh, you can think of other moments when our electoral system was, uh, our democratic system was under serious strain. Uh, in the early 20th century in uh, southern states, uh, Jim Crow laws had undermined the gains of Reconstruction. And ultimately, there was a multi-decade fight that ends with the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It ends with Supreme Court one man, one vote decisions between 1962 and 64. And they didn't solve all the problems, but they certainly changed the basic ability of people to vote. And so there's different reforms being floated from the voting rights legislation that's been stalled in the Senate to efforts to deal with how the electoral college works and to make sure there's no kinds of tricks and machinations in, in a future election to overturn the electoral will. And I think even if that's not perfect, I think those are real solutions. And, and finally, accountability still is possible. There's, there's many trials going on of, of people who were there on January 6th, and there's investigations in Congress about which members of the administration, which Republicans on Capitol Hill were part of this. And those all have to continue. And Biden has to throw his full support after this speech uh, to all of these efforts. All right. So both of you are historians of Washington, but particularly of the Republican Party. Uh, you know, Susan's a co-author uh, with Peter Baker of the man who ran Washington Life and Times of Jim Baker when you used to have grown ups who ran the Republican Party. And of course, <laughs> Julian Zelizer, you've written about uh, Newt Gingrich and, uh, you know, that 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 uh, development, that era of the Republican Party. So I want to let's talk about this because we've had a couple of references to the fact that it's not just Trump. It's this transformation of the Republican Party into his image, particularly since in the last year with the Republican Party embracing the big lie. So this is what Mitch and I still find this remarkable a year later. This is what Mitch McConnell said on the floor of the Senate last February. January 6th was a disgrace. American citizens attacked their own government. They used terrorism to try to stop a specific piece of domestic business they did not like. Fellow Americans beat and bloodied our own police. They stormed the Senate floor. They tried to hunt down the Speaker of the House. They built a gallows and chanted about murdering the vice president. They did this because they'd been fed wild falsehoods by the most powerful man on earth. Because he was angry, he lost an election. Former President Trump's actions preceded the riot were a disgraceful, disgraceful, dereliction of duty. The House accused the former president of, quote, incitement. That is a specific term from the criminal law. Let me just put that aside for a moment and reiterate something I said weeks ago. 
There's no question, none, that President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. No question about it. The people who stormed this building believed they were acting on the wishes and instructions of their president. And having that belief was a foreseeable consequence of the growing crescendo of false statements, conspiracy theories, and reckless hyperbole, which the defeated president kept shouting into the largest megaphone on planet Earth. Okay, so I guess, Susan, I listen to that. And I think to myself, how did we go from that to this moment where the Republican Party is all in on Trump's big lie? What happened to the grownups in the GOP? It's not just the so-called establishment. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the Republicans who are willing to be independent. So how do we go from that moment to the moment we're in now where the overwhelming majority of Republicans support Donald Trump, believe the big lie, and really seem to have no problem with what happened a year ago today. You know, Charlie, I, the surprise is that we're surprised, to be honest. Mm. And uh, it, it's hard to look at that. It's easier. It's more convenient for people like Mitch McConnell uh, to say, well, you know, after the election, Trump went crazy. Or, you know, you saw versions of that. Uh, uh, Mick Mulvaney, who was one of Trump's uh, multiple uh, White House chiefs of staff wrote a, wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal saying that, oh my gosh, this isn't the Donald Trump I know. But of course, <laughs> he's exactly right, yeah. Donald Trump that we knew. And by the way, she's been extraordinary, extraordinary in her willingness to break with the party and just to sort of say what she thinks. But Liz Cheney, I will remind you, endorsed Donald Trump for re-election mm-hmm. in 2020 after months and months of Donald Trump saying it's a rigged election, it's a rigged election, I essentially I won't accept any result that doesn't have me winning. That was months and months and years that led up to what happened on January 6th. And that's one of my frustrations on this sort of day when properly we are marking, you know, the one year anniversary of this moment. But in a way, we can get so lost in the details of, you know, sort of here's when, you know, this terrible thing happened at, you know, 3.48 p.m., uh, yeah. Donald Trump was watching TV and cheering. You know, that's terrible. What What's terrible is that it took months and years of propaganda and lies to get people to that moment. It's not a surprise. The Republican Party embraced Donald Trump to a historic degree over the course of his presidency. There was remarkably little dissension from Trump. It was always in the other direction. The surprise, I would argue, is that we're surprised. And by the way, and I'll, I'll stop, but yeah. you know, the Republican Party nominated Donald Trump to be president. How did he come into the public life through the lie about Barack Obama uh, and the birtherism controversy. Conspiracy theories and lies were at the core of this man. And the Republican Party let him be for years. So I'm not surprised, unfortunately. 140 House Republicans literally stepped over the broken glass of the United States Capitol and voted on the big lie and voted not to certify Biden's election last January 6th. That was the real indication of where things would go this last year politically. And it was just too horrible for many people to accept that. 
So, Julian Zelizer, I'm really interested to hear your reaction as well, because obviously, as Susan mentions, the this dysfunction is a pre-existing condition in the in the Republican Party. But I mean, and you wrote about uh, Newt Gingrich and about what's happened. But give me your take on this. How what happened to the Republican Party? And I guess the, not just what happened in the last year to the Republican, but how did we get here? How did we get here? Yeah, I mean, I just want to echo Susan's point. Mm-hmm. There, there shouldn't be any surprise, and I think any of us who've spent time studying the history of the party, you, you not only see this coming, but we've been talking about this kind of radicalization that's taken place at, at many moments that precede Trump. And and the key point was when he got nominated and won the nomination, when there should have been clarity that this party had already changed uh, pretty, pretty dramatically. I think Gingrich, for me, was a key figure uh, in in pushing toward a party that was much more extreme in how it envisioned partisan warfare and uh, embracing a willingness to abandon guardrails in politics that people like James Baker, um, who Susan has written about mm-hmm. so well, still uh, adhered to. It was, you know, if there's trade-offs between governing and the health of democratic institutions and partisanship, which politicians used to really think of all of them and uh, and try to weigh kind of which was most important at a given point, Gingrich went all in with the partisanship. And I think the party has gradually moved in that direction. We saw it with a lot of the Tea Party members who came in um, during uh, the Obama administration. We saw it, as Susan said, with birtherism. So this has been in the making for a long time. And I certainly was pretty skeptical when Senator McConnell made that speech yeah. uh, as strong as it was at the very end, uh, after Democrats had you know, engaged in, in, in so much of this um, and, and continued to attack the election. So uh, I think the the party, it's been a multi-decade process and it's not going to change anytime soon. Okay. So I'm going to be asked this question later today. So I figured I would bounce it off you guys. I'm going to be asked to come up with a one sentence, single phrase tagline for the Republican party right now. How would you describe it? You want to go first, Susan? The party of Trump. Yeah. Okay. Um, Julian? Radicalized. A radicalized party. So here, here's the alternative history question. If Mitch McConnell would have finished that speech by saying, and therefore I am going to vote to convict and disqualify Donald J. Trump, um, would, would the last year have been different? Was there any moment in which if Republicans had stood up and said, okay, we're, we're moving on, we're taking the off ramp, that we would have had a, a different outcome? What do, what do you think? Susan Glasser. I think the answer is yes, actually, Charlie. Uh, It's never too late to do the right thing, first of all. Second of all, I think we've seen from Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger that once a politician has made the decision to to do the right thing and to just sort of speak out in a way that is heedless of potential negative consequences from the right that actually does create its own new reality. They continue to speak out. Uh, it, 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 you know, McConnell clearly doesn't command his entire caucus, which is why he didn't do that uh, a year ago. However, he did still command a large number of votes. Remember, McConnell was one of 19 Republican senators who voted mm-hmm. in favor of bipartisan infrastructure deal. So let's just say there were 19 Republicans or 22 or whatever it's going to be who might have followed him 
uh, in that vote. And I do believe there would have been a, a significant number of additional Republican senators, if not a majority of them, who would have voted to convict had McConnell made that decision. And mm-hmm. I think that they would have been uh, would have found uh, a, a very different Republican Party today because Trump would have attacked them. They would have, you know, held hands and uh, resisted Trump's attacks on them for reasons of political survival, if nothing else. And I think it's just a reminder, you can't game it out. And I think that's too much of what's happened over the last few years is people always sort of being too clever by half and trying to figure out what's going to happen in the unknowable future rather than just doing the right thing in the knowable present. Uh, Julian Zelizer, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, parties can change. We've we've seen this historically you can think of moments like the way that the eyes, Dwight Eisenhower in the 1950s moved his party toward accepting the basic framework of the New Deal uh, and, and making arguments within that framework rather than opposing everything that had happened. We saw the Democrats in the 1960s and 70s gradually uh, move away from the Southern Democrats who had been the obstacles and roadblock uh, to civil rights and other policies. So, so the parties can definitely change. I'm not convinced uh, McConnell has any interest in that. So I think the scenario you posited could have worked. It would have been an important moment during that impeachment, but I don't think the Republican Party was ever uh, going to go close to that. And uh, I think McConnell really is quite comfortable, frankly, uh, with where the party is, and he thinks he can preserve and uh, his own power and expand the power of the GOP uh, using the kind of arguments we're hearing all the time today. You know, my my only thought here is that uh, they had so many opportunities to break with Trump after he was defeated and and behaved in this particular way. And it would have been messy. There's no question about it. I mean, there would have been blowback from uh, the right wing media and and from the base. Uh, But ultimately, the the great sweet spot for Republicans is to be, and and I don't mean this as pejorative as it will come off, is is to be reactionary, to react against um, the Biden administration and its agenda, and they are united there. Um, you know, so yes, there would have been hard feelings, but I think there would have been some healing in opposition. So, uh, speaking of alternative facts, you know, look, I, I think that there's a lot of reasons to uh, criticize uh, Mike Pence. I think a lot of his, his behavior was was particularly odious, but I keep coming back to how close things came a year ago, that how much did hinge on Mike Pence uh, doing the right thing, not going along. Uh, The president put so much power on his loyal vice president. What would have happened if Pence would have gone along with this plan? What if Pence had gone along with the this 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 plan to not count the electoral votes? Does anybody know how that would have played out, Susan Glasser? You know, it's it's a terrifying uh, version of alternate reality that the one certainly just underscores that this was a very, very close call and that, you know, when you ignore uh, a red alarm alert like that and don't make structural fixes, uh, you know, to clarify the electoral college process and all of that, then then it's on you the next time. So I do think it's a very, very close call. Secondly, the answer is it's so unprecedented, so without... No one knows. It's a complete chaos. Now, I think in a narrow sense, the answer is that he would have been ruled out of order and they would have, you know, voted to overrule him and then they would have counted the the votes. Anyway, 
And that's what would have happened. There's a majority in both the House and the Senate, by the way, even among Republican-controlled Senate at that time. Uh, they would have just overruled him. Uh, and that's what happens. Uh, you can vote to overrule the chair. And I, I asked that question at the time. That's the answer I was given. It's a perfectly clear and rational answer. It doesn't perhaps address the surround sound of a violent mob and, <laughs> and you know, the kind of terror that might have rained down as a result of that. Uh, I do believe uh, we saw this clearly that, you know, the, the institutions of government, law enforcement, the military, they would not have allowed Donald Trump to remain illegally in office and they would have taken him out of office. I actually do believe that. But the, I mean, that would have been essentially a step much yeah. closer to civil war. I mean, the fact is we shouldn't even be wondering this. It's no, the, of course the, not. <laughs> the point is that we are at a, a moment in 2022 now and in the middle of this pandemic uh, continuing that we're speculating about if one person had acted differently, if the vice president had moved in a different direction. It's unclear to all of us, all of us who follow politics, who study politics, how this would unfold. And we can imagine at some level a scenario where the um, will of the electorate is overturned. And that signals we are in a bad place and that we have a serious problem that the president today decided to uh, address. Um, but we can't risk next election that that one person does the right thing. Um, the system uh, can't really survive if, if that's the way we're uh, counting on elections to work. So, uh, Julian, you used a word that I think is, is crucial uh, going forward, which is accountability. Who will be held accountable for this? So far, we have the people who went into the Capitol who have been held accountable, who have been charged, but not the people who incited them. Um, I I was on um, MSNBC yesterday talking about the January 6th committee, and I said, you know, they ought to have the televised hearings in there, and they need to do four things. They need to uh, tell the story, show the pictures, connect the dots. And then hold people um, accountable, the people who who who, uh, who actually orchestrated this. Do you think that they will ultimately? Do you? Th I mean, Merrick Garland gave a speech yesterday that sort of hinted that he would go after anybody at any level, but fell far short of saying anything that makes you know I think uh, close legal observers thinking that he might actually go after Donald Trump. So, what do you think, Susan Glasser? Will the ringleaders, including Trump, ever be held legally accountable for what happened last year? No. Julian Zelizer. No, I don't think so. And I think, uh, <laughs> I, I do believe um, that the attorney general is, is serious about working on this, but I don't think the administration really wants to, at some level, go after the former president beyond the speeches and members of the Republican Party who were part of this whole uh, attack on the election. I just, I, I, I would be surprised if anything substantive happens. I would place my bets on that accountability portion not being fulfilled. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see what the January 6th committee does. I, I by the way, I agree with both of you on this. But Susan, do, will the January 6th committee, will it make a difference? And, and I and I say that with the image of Lucy pulling the football away. I, I, I say that with this sort of, you know, haunted memory of, of all of the cable talking heads <laughs> talking about, well, what the Mueller report is going to do to Donald Trump. But, you know, will the January 6th committee with primetime televised hearings. Could they make a difference? 
could they come up with evidence that might move the needle at all? Or have we just been here so many times that it's moot? No, I, look, I actually do believe that it's very important, uh, whether, by the way, whether it moves the needle in a narrow sense or not, it's very important for history, for this process to play out, for the January 6th committee to uh, gather every bit of evidence they can to put it into the public record. Uh, I thought the fact-checking aspect of Biden's speech was extremely important, and and I think it's it's right to question why it took so long for him to say it for that reason. I think yeah. it is very important for the record to be non-negotiable, adamant, detailed, clear, to force people, by the way, under oath to testify. I think that's crucial, which is why any kind of accountability proceedings strike me as as still a a very real urgency, largely because we don't know what's going to happen in the future. Julian. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I think, look, the hearings are important. I fully support it. I think uh, although there's been a lot of bad congressional hearings, there's also been, as we saw in Watergate in 1973, important ones that can change how the public perceives a situation. That said, we had public hearings on this. We had the second impeachment, which was uh, not only did, did uh, Congressman Raskin and others go through all the details of what had happened and connect the dots to members of the administration, even with less evidence, it was done in the heat of the attack when members of Congress, Republicans and Democrats understood just how serious this was. And while a few Republicans did switch and vote to impeach the president, most did not. And since that impeachment, we've moved forward in some ways. And so I just look at that as an indication of how these hearings will probably play out politically. It doesn't mean they shouldn't happen. It doesn't mean they're not important. Um, but we've we've seen this before, and the ending probably doesn't provide much optimism to those who are hoping for change. No, I agree. On the other hand, I, I am impressed with the way they're going about it and the amount of information and evidence that they are getting. I mean, we've had a lot of attention on the people who won't cooperate, but apparently they have talked to an awful lot of people. They have a lot of documentary evidence, including this weird document dump from Mark Meadows. Uh, that he turned over before he decided that uh, he wasn't going to break with the Orange God King. Uh, and and there's always that that unpredictable little tidbit here about what what the president was doing, the, the, the uh, eyewitness testimony, the text messages that are out there, the emails that are out there. Uh, you know, I, I think I, I keep thinking of the, you know, the Benghazi hearings went on and really went nowhere, accomplished nothing, except that's where the whole... But Hillary's emails came from, right? I mean, so there are the unpredictable things. I guess what I'm haunted by, and you know, going back to the Watergate hearings, I mean, nobody predicted that you know Alexander Butterfield would say, and yes, we taped everything that went on in the Oval Office. But what I'm haunted by is the sense that that if Watergate took place now, Richard Nixon simply could come out and say, you know, damn right we burgled the place. I'm glad I, you know, glad we did, and we'll do it all over again. And everybody would go, yeah, that's that's what we want. We want a fighter. So. Julian Zellers, there's any doubt that in the current media environment that Richard Nixon would have survived Watergate? I, I think that's exact. That's accurate. Uh, I think not only would he have survived it, he would have embraced it. Yeah, that's uh, what and he wouldn't have covered up. He would have done everything in broad daylight. And that is 
the story for me of January 6th isn't just what the committee discovers. It's just go look back on the C-SPAN tape uh, or, or any kind of um, tapes of, of the former president. And they were saying everything out loud. Look at the senators yeah, who were going loud. to Capitol Hill that day totally embracing this argument about uh, voter fraud and, and an election that was corrupt. They were doing it right in front of our eyes. And so I would imagine that if we were back uh, in, in 73 and 74, the Butterfield revelations, the John Dean revelations, none of that would have made a difference. And Richard Nixon would have been all in with what he did and uh, Republicans would have stood by him. Uh, so it's hard not to see that scenario uh, had that taken place uh, currently. Okay, Susan, I know you have to run. Last word on this, one year anniversary of January 6th. Let's hope, hope against certainly some of the evidence that it was the end of Trump rather than the beginning of, you know, the next phase in this great American divide that we're experiencing. Uh, it's, uh, it's a tough time. Susan Glasser, staff writer for The New Yorker, co-author of The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James Baker, Julian Zellerzer, professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University. Thank you so much for joining me on this uh, rather extraordinary anniversary. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again. <laughs>